Indeed, O God, we are a people who have come to worship a king. It is not simply a religious leader. It is not simply a personality that we've come to to lay our lives in front of. It is a king. It is a divine king, a king that left his home in glory so that he might become poor, that his people might become rich. We are the people who have been bought with a price. We are owned by this king, and we are glad that we are. And so, Heavenly Father, accept this this feeble worship that we bring you this morning. Might it be empowered, indwelt, surrounded by the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh God, in, in your grand celestial audience of one, be pleased by what emanates from the hearts and souls from your people this morning. We are a glad people, a glad people that you have found a way to make a provision for sin. Because, oh God, we recognize that we are the ones for whom a Savior had to die. Sinners through and through, broken people, people who have a love of sin, And now, O God, you have, by the power of the Holy Spirit, given us something new, something fresh, a a fresh start, a new beginning, and we are yours. So take every ounce of us, O God, every particle of our being, and use it for your own glory. Father, um, as so many of us rejoice, for many, this is a hard time of the year. It is filled with memories that are, um, that are less than gladsome. It is hard for them to move beyond their own sense of loss and pain. And for them, O oh God, we pray that the great I Am will come alongside them to mend up their breaking hearts. I pray, O God, that you will give them a sense of hope, a sense of certainty, that indeed, because of Jesus Christ, all is well. All is well in the midst of a chaotic world, in the midst of a suffering life, in the midst of enormous loss. Remind us by the power of the Spirit that, indeed, all is well. Now, Father, take our gifts, use them for the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We don't give them because we're trying to earn points. We give them with reason, with purpose, all in the hope that you'll be glorified. And the kingdom of Jesus Christ might be expanded from pole to pole. Do that, O God. For Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray, amen. Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them with me to the second book of the Bible, uh, Exodus, Exodus chapter 23. And let me read you, beginning at verse 20, I'll read you through the end of the chapter, up to verse 33. Exodus chapter 23 at verse 20. You follow in your copies of God's Word. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him 
and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God and he will bless your bread and your water and I will take sickness away from you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out before you in one year lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. I want to tell you a story this morning that is, um, that is almost fairy tale-like. If you like that one about the, uh, the, uh, the wicked witch who puts the beautiful princess under her spell and, and uh, she doesn't wake up until her Prince Charming comes and kisses her. I think that was Sleeping Beauty, wasn't it? If you like that one, you're going to love this one. Guys, um, the story that I just read you is, is in many ways almost too good to be true, just like a fairy tale. So, listen. Once upon a time, there was this people, this this group of people, a a nation who had been brought into this terrible, cruel bondage by some some very wicked tyrants. And, And there they had been mistreated and abused and imprisoned for A long time. And after many years of having existed in that cruel tyranny, they were set free from their bondage and delivered from all of their oppressors. Not by some Prince Charming. They were set free by by God himself. God had stretched out his, his mighty arm and and, and had delivered them. And, and it even destroyed the army of this previous oppressor in this epic scene in battle at a place called the Red Sea. I, of course, am 
am alluding to a nation known as Israel. And then God provided all sorts of leadership for these people. I mean, because these people were very special to him. Oh, yes. He did wonderful things for them. He even at one point, early on in this new life of freedom, provided for them a code of conduct. And this code that he gave them was not intended to to rob them of any joy. Oh, by no means, quite contrary to that. It was intended to instruct them as to how they might live a life of, of the greatest amount of fruitfulness, the greatest amount of enjoyment. Because, as I said, these people, these people were very special to God. And not only did he do that, but almost as just a matter of days after they had left their cruel bondage, this, our, this God makes to this people some wonderful promises. Extraordinary promises. For instance, in verse 31, it's mentioned that he is going to give to them a land that they could call their own, a, a homeland. Uh, now, of course, it was presently occupied by some, by some very bad men, but the promise was there nonetheless. Oh, that they would have a place that they could call home, a place that would be that would become theirs. And then the second part of, of or the second promise that he made is uh, so that that land could become theirs, he would get rid of all the bad guys and, and he would um, would fight for them. In fact, their enemies, according to verse 22, their enemies would be his enemies. What a thrilling prospect. <laughs> My enemies are God's enemies? So they're, they're no match for me. They might be a match for me, but not when, when God makes them his enemies. And then in verse 28, he says, I'm going to send hornets to drive all those bad guys out. I mean, a, a very unique and, and uh, military weapon, I think you'll agree, but, but effective nonetheless. And then in addition to that, not only would he give them a land and and get the bad guys out by becoming uh, their enemy too and sending hornets to drive them out, we're, we're also told uh, in verses 25 and 26 that he is going to provide food for them. And, and in addition to the food, he was going to make them fertile. Nobody in the land was going to be barren. Everybody was going to bear children which was very more important in that culture, if you can imagine it, more important in that culture than even in ours. And then he was going to rid them of diseases. Oh, they were going to be healthy people with uh, healthy children and, and productive, uh, I mean, uh, much fertility and, and all the food that they needed. Wow. Wow. I mean, this is, this is becoming fairy tale like isn't it? But then the best of all, the best of all would be that he was going to send his angel. Ooh. But this wasn't going to be just any angel. According to verse 22, this was going to be an angel that has his name in him. Who do you think that was? Um, this angel 
would guard them, lead them, protect them. And in response to all of those kindnesses, all of those provisions, all of those promises, God insisted specifically on one thing. On one thing I want you to concentrate. And it's this. Do not bow down to their gods. In, in fact, when you come in contact with those gods, destroy them. D- don't show them any mercy, just destroy them. Because, you see, if those gods ever get in you, it will surely be a snare to you. And then, of course, this isn't in the text. This is something I'm adding. You can almost hear a 34th verse that says, And you will live... Happily ever after. You know, I wonder what those people thought when they heard, if you bet down to those gods, it's going to be a snare to you. I wonder, I wonder what they thought when they heard that word snare. I tried to track it down. I, I found the word um, uh, in Hebrew, but it didn't help me much. I wonder what they thought when they heard the word snare. Um, you know, you know, fellas, if we, if we bow down to an idol, uh, it's not going to be a good thing. You know, I don't think they had a clue just how much damage and pain they would inflict upon themselves if they bowed down to an idol. A snare? <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of an understatement. Maybe there's some loss in the translation from the Hebrew to the English, but if you do that, it's going to be a snare. Well, that's not good. Seems to me to be vastly understated. How about... An emotional, spiritual, psychological, physical tsunami. If you bow down to those gods. Or how about the consequences will be so far reaching that no feature of your life will be left untouched. If you bow down to their gods. You know, you want to know how to wreck a fairy tale? You just throw an idol in there. <laughs> Boy, that'll ruin it. It didn't take Israel long to, um, to veer off course. Long before Israel ever entered that promised land, uh, there was that ugly incident with the golden calf. In chapter 32, I just read you out of 23. It was on, in chapter 32, there's this ugly, ugly incident with the, um, with that golden calf thing. Um, and then listen to this. 
while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. That's Numbers 25. Uh, And they hadn't even gotten into the promised land. But they get there. But it wasn't long after they had gotten into that promised land that the, um, the whole thing had broken down miserably. Uh, the book of Joshua will tell you all you want to know and more. God did all that he had promised. Gave them the land, became their enemy, the enemy of their enemies, and, and little by little, Israel gave her heart to other gods. And the fairy tale came crashing to a close. Sleeping Beauty didn't get kissed. The uh, the prince never found Cinderella. You, you just can't help but feeling sorry for these people. When they had so much offered to them, And they forfeited so dang much. What does all that have to do with me, Jimmy, you ask? Well, guys, um, I have sought over this fall uh, to call you to kingdom living. I I have um, beckoned you, summoned you to live life outside the shire. I hope we never forget that. I, you know, that's original. Gosh, I don't have very, very many original thoughts. If it's not in a book or on a tape, I don't know it. But um, that was an original one. Just calling you to live life outside the Shire. And, I, and I've sought to outline for you a life that was lived as it was intended to be lived. A life of meaning and purpose and, and security and identity and joy. I've sought to give you a a brand new definition of beauty. I've sought to replace a a, a worldly value system with a kingdom value system. I've sought to outline for you a life as it was to be lived gladly under the rule of a good king. This has not been a series on idolatry. I did that two years ago. But part of the reason that kingdom living is so rare, my dear brother and sister in Christ, is because we've given our hearts away to other gods and the the totality of our being has been affected by it. If you think this is sad, like I think it is, I think when you look at the Christian church today, it's, it's just as sad as this, if not sadder. If I give myself to a God substitute, I'm the one who suffers. 
And I end up with some kind of addiction that, that controls me. And not only that, my God substitutes, they keep raising the ante. You know, I, uh, I have to have more of it. Or I have to do it more often. Or I have to run faster or work harder or perform better. It's not easy to satisfy an idol. Because it keeps asking me for more and more and more. Gang, don't you see that much of my love of sin today can be explained by my love of sin yesterday. I loved it yesterday, but now it keeps spinning. And the demands keep getting bigger. And I get sucked into the vortex of this ever-increasing demand of my idols. And, And I'm the one I'm the one that is so inflicted with pain. You know, there's a a couple of statements in the book of Jeremiah. The one's in in Jeremiah chapter 2, where God is speaking to Israel, and he says, and I'm quoting, My people, I mean, he says this to my people. That's us. That's us. He says, My people have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. We, uh, we, we forfeited him, and we grabbed hold of something else. You see... An idolater chooses things that that may be good in and of themselves. And then we grant to them a power that they were never meant to have. We've replaced God with things that we have made ourselves. and, And then we ask those things to do for us things that only God can do for us. But we set Him aside. And in the language of Jeremiah, I love this image. They have dug for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. And in chapter 10, Jeremiah goes on to say that their their idols are powerless and worthless and temporary. That line, all week long, kept ringing in my head, they're... They're holding on to cisterns that can hold no water. You know what a cistern is? It's just anything that could hold water. Uh, they could be large. They could be on the roof of the house. They could be anywhere. But, I mean, th- think of this. Think of a pitcher. Just a pitcher. A pitcher that's got holes in the bottom. And we keep pouring into it and pouring into it and pouring into it. And we're holding on to something that just can hold no water. But we keep holding. Take take sex, for example, which seems to be the most blatant of the 
false infinities in the 21st century. I want to read you just a quote from a, a poet by the name of Michael Ryan in his book entitled Secret Life. Listen to this. He says, in alluding, in, in referring to sex, he says, It determined what I thought and what I felt. My personality was formed around it. All of my talents, all of my good qualities as a human being were devoted to serving it. And I was willing to sacrifice anything to it. Although I could perform practical tasks perfectly well, it was running my life. Michael Ryan's not alone. The most recent statistic is that three out of ten professing evangelicals are now into internet porn. Do you know of any good thing that has come of that? Any good thing? We took a good thing and we made it into an ultimate thing and it became a very ugly thing. I, I've, I've used this quote before, but I never tire of using C.S. Lewis as somebody to quote. He says, sex will cease to be a demon when it ceases to be a god. That's what we've done to it. We've made it a god. It's just one of those Things that has become the sweet poison of the false infinite. And we end up holding on to a pitcher that can hold no water. Or, or how about career? You know, we've got to be successful so we can, uh, so we can have more money. So we can gain people's applause, so we can be in control, so that we can somehow convince ourselves that we're valuable. So to serve that God, we, we cheat on our income tax, and we, we uh, get too far in debt, and we, we lie about the products we sell, and, and we give away only that which we'll never miss, and, and we envy those who have more, and we undercut our rivals, all in service to our God. Boy, hasn't that made us some beautiful people. <laughs> We're just holding on to pictures that can hold no water. Or education. Uh, I've got to get uh, good grades so I can get into the best schools. So that I can have an impressive resume. So that I can land the most prestigious jobs. So that... I can gain people's approval so that I can somehow convince myself that I've got some value. So we cheat on exams and we um, plagiarize other men's works. We exaggerate on our resume and, and we overstate our abilities. All to feed the gods. And then someday or somebody finds out the truth about us. And we're left holding on to a pitcher that holds no water. Or family. I want to be known as the all-American mom. So we neglect our souls. We compromise morality. We neglect our husbands. We, um, we refuse to discipline so that we can have an appearance of having the ideal family. And it worked for a while. While the kids were under six. Now my, my kids are gone, 
My marriage is completely empty. I'm depressed, and on top of all that, my kids have broken my heart more than once. And all I've got to show for it is a pitcher that holds no water. Do I need to go on? Gang, you see what we've done. We came into a relationship with a God who found a way to save sinners like us. And that God gave us all these promises about the life that we can have, the life that was intended, the life that was rich and full. We gave that away. We, um, we forsook the spring of living water so that we could hold on to a pitcher that won't hold any. We, we've taken good things. Nothing wrong with family or career or sex or education. We took good things. We turned them into ultimate things. They became bad things. No, ladies and gentlemen, this is not just a snare. Our inordinate loves control us. And they ruin marriages, they ruin health, they ruin people, they ruin lives. And you know what, my dear brother and sister in Christ, about the only thing worse than not getting what you want is getting it. Let, let me tell you two quick stories. Do you know the story? This is an old movie now, but I think many of you have seen it. It was, gosh, I guess it's 25 years old now. Um, the Chariots of Fire with Eric Little, the, the missionary to China who ran, who was a Scotsman who ran for, and uh, was the distance runner, and he won the Olympics and all that. You might remember the music that came out of it was, is, was memorable. But um, there's a scene in there right before, as the Olympics are unfolding, where Harold Abrahams, you remember him? Harold Abrahams was the Jewish guy who um, was a sprinter. And uh, just moments before his race, a race for which he had trained most of his life, he, he makes this statement in the movie that is just so poignant. And, and he says this, and I'm quoting, he says, you know... I used to be afraid to lose, but now I'm afraid to win. I have ten seconds in which to prove the reason for my existence. And even then, I'm not sure I will. Gang, what happens if you win and you're still empty? What do you do then? Where do you go now if you got it? Perhaps you remember the story. I've told this story before. It seems like it was years ago, but it was a, it was a story. It was a, it was a children's story, and I'm pretty sure the title was Stripes. Stripes was, uh, was a caterpillar, 
And Stripes, it's a story about the life of Stripes, the caterpillar. And Stripes was a, was a, a healthy young caterpillar. He found a pretty young caterpillar that he fell in love with and married her. And, and uh, so, you know, Stripes wanted to have a life that really counted for something. And so he, um, he decided to make something of himself. He wanted to do something, you know, you know, to really count. And so he didn't know exactly what that was when he started. But he noticed off in the distance there was this, this pillar, this pillar. And he couldn't tell exactly what the pillar was from a distance. But, but he noticed that everybody was streaming towards the pillar. And so he decided, well, you know, if everybody's going there, I might, well, might as well go there too. And so he uh, kissed his wife goodbye and, and headed off to the, to the pillar. And as he got closer and closer to the pillar, uh, he realized that the pillar was a, was a, giant, a, a, a giant mound of caterpillars. And everybody was streaming to the, to the pillar to go up the pillar to get to the top. And, and so, you know, he didn't understand everything that was going on, but everybody was heading that direction. So he just kind of got in line and kind of, you know, elbowed his way in and shoved around a little bit and got closer and closer and closer to the, to the pillar. And then he began his, um, his trek upwards that, uh, of that pillar. And, and early on in the pillar, he noticed or he, he heard that this giant noise took place and, and, and a big bang. And all of a sudden, all these little caterpillar bodies, they were flying everywhere and were coming down and falling all over the ground. And there was caterpillar innards all over the floor. And it was an ugly, ugly scene. And, uh, and, but he held on. And, and sure enough, after that big explosion, he noticed that there was, there was more room for him to make his way to the top. So he kept crawling and scooching up the pillar. And the higher he got, the more people he had to step on and, and elbow out of the way. But it didn't matter because he was, he was on his way to the top. And just about when he got to the top, he heard in a whispered voice, he heard somebody say, There's nothing up here. And somebody replied in another whispering voice saying, Shut up, you fool. We're up here. And they want to be up here where we are. That's what's up here. So Stripes didn't know what to think of it. And he kept crawling upward and he finally got to the top. Only to realize... There's nothing up here. And all he had was a picture that held no water. What happens, my dear brother and sister in Christ, when you get it and you're still empty? Where do you go then? French philosopher Montaigne said, Man is surely a stark, man is surely stark raving mad. He can't make a worm, but he can make gods by the dozen. I forgot who said this, but I think it was Calvin who said that the human heart is a veritable factory, a manufacturing plant 
of idols. That's just tragic to me that I've done that to myself. It's a fairy tale that that came crashing to a close. Gang, it's one of the saddest tales that I, I have to tell. It's sadder than any fairy tale. Because we are a people who have been bought with the price of shed blood. And we exchange the truth of God for a lie. And we wonder why we feel so empty. Guys, what things are idols in your life? Well, ask yourself some of these questions. I've certainly asked them of my own. What things am I willing to sacrifice the most for? What is it that I can't live without? And if I don't get it, I'd just as soon die. A husband, a wife, kids, success. What things, if you lost them, would you not want to live? What, what do you fear losing the most? What prayer, if it were to go unanswered, would you consider throwing in your spiritual towel? You better come through for this, God. Because if you don't, I'm finished. So whatever that is, that's your real God. And you are just using God to get what you really want. Guys, the things that we have put in God's place, they've got to go. They're killing us. All of us. They're killing us. C.S. Lewis said, aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. But aim at earth and you get neither. And that's what so many of us have. We have neither. We're left holding on to a handful of neither. The promised land. is a locality on earth where God's people live as glad-hearted subjects of a good king to whose kingdom they belong, where where they find joy, knowing that they can't find joy anyplace else. Once upon a time, there was this people 
this group of people that were delivered from a bondage to sin by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And very early on in that new life of theirs, Jesus made them some wonderful promises. think about that. Our Father, I do pray that you will remind your people that life as it was intended is full of meaning and purpose and direction and joy. It's a life where the values are defined not by our culture, but they are defined by you. That beauty is something that is given its meaning not by Hollywood, but by you. That meaning and purpose and value is all our, our very identity is to be found wrapped up in our, our walk with Jesus Christ, in being married to him. And I pray, Lord, that you will rid us of this sadness and replace it with joy, the joy of living as glad-hearted subjects of a good king to whose kingdom we belong. Father, help us. We cannot will to death those things that have so controlled us for too long. By the power and infusion of your Holy Spirit, put to death for us. Help us, O God, to put to death those things that drain life out of us. Would you do that, Lord? If you will. This will be a Christmas that we will never forget. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name and for his sake.